WBZ original. I have a photograph <laughs> of me in 1969 that, um, shall we say, will shock you. Absolutely oh. shock. The summer of love. Think shoulder length hair. Wow. The mustache. And I'm giving the peace sign. Oh, yeah. And hippie children are frolicking in oh, the background. So awesome. Fabulous. I don't know Beautiful. what went wrong since then, but something went terribly, <laughs> but terribly you know what? wrong. The mustache remains. That's right. Yeah. The and mustache. That's, that's important. Welcome in, everybody, to a jam-packed Studio BZ this week. It's Season 3, Episode 3, and we're glad you're joining us. I'm Paula Evan. I'm Leah Martin. Yeah, I'm John Keller, and I am wondering, why do we say jam-packed? Jam-packed. Why couldn't it be... Is, yeah, jam-packed in Jelly-packed. Yeah, so is it jelly-packed. Oh, so or, or is it jam-packed as in you jammed all this stuff jam in? I think it's jam Yeah, I think you uh, jammed, jammed it in. It okay. in. No, stupid it's question. It's not a prejudice against jelly. Jam. No. Okay. Uh, this we podcast... We are pro-jelly, pro-jam. It's well, bursting at the seams. As yes. the executive director of the Jelly Defamation Society, <laughs> I'm very sensitive about stuff like that. We understand. So. We are uh, conscious sensitive. of that. And we really do, mm. though, have a jam or jelly-packed broadcast, mm-hmm. or wherever you want to put it. It's almost like we have so much stuff going on. It's we're, we're trying to figure out what to put in because there's it's so true. much good stuff I here. Know it. I we know start it. with we've been hearing this as parents. Anyone with young kids is really aware of this right now. That too much screen time can be bad for your kids. We've seen this in study after study. But why and how can you use screen time in a way that won't be so bad? We talked with Nancy Carlson Page. She has researched this topic extensively. She is a professor at Lesley University in Cambridge, and she also happens to be Matt Damon's mom. And we asked her not just about her research into screen time, but about how she raised Matt Damon when the TV screen was the thing that parents were worried about. And then uh, immigration is front and center in our political life nationally, of course, with the border wall standoff in Washington. And locally, the Safe Communities Act is a controversial item on the agenda on Beacon Hill. Uh, Incidents of violent crime by illegal immigrants uh, make a lot of news when they happen. We'll be talking about all of that with, with a special focus on the local angle with Jessica Vaughn from the Center for Immigration Studies. That is a nonpartisan think tank that analyzes immigration issues, and they're often cited by the conservative side of the immigration debate. But I think you may be surprised at what Jessica Vaughn has to say about the border wall and about some of the other hot-button immigration issues. And then there's an important date looming next week. Uh, Wednesday is the deadline for open enrollment to the Mass Health Connector in Enrollment ends next week, and we talk to Audrey Gasteyer about what you need to know. And then we're going to have a look at the gadgets of tomorrow unveiled at CES. This takes place every year in Las Vegas. I love this. Some of these gadgets are fantastic, and some of them are so dumb. My mind <laughs> exploded. And so I'm going to throw these past John Keller and Paula. Okay. I'm not going to tell you what they are. But we will bring them up at the end of the broadcast. In the year 2525, if man is still alive, (laughs) your arms hanging limp by your sides, machines doing everything for you. And if you subscribe right now to the podcast, if enough of you subscribe, song. I will promise never to sing on the wait, podcast wait, wait, wait. Hold again. On. Just I want to establish, is that a song oh, that exists oh, or were, yes. you, were you spitballing? Before your time, youngster, that was a big hit back in the 60s. We'll talk more about that later. <laughs> 
Jonathan's he was thinking, hilarious. that's out. Yeah. I was completely that's lost. I yeah. had no idea what that was. Vager and Evans. There you go. Vager and Evans? Vager and Evans. Vager and Evans. Year two, yes. In the This is one of those fantastic only in Boston kind of stories that people are incredulous when you tell them. January 15th, 1919, a 15 to 25-foot wave of molasses syrup traveling at 21 miles per hour came flowing out of this building down in what we now, you know, in Boston's north end, that area near the Boston Garden, I believe. It killed 21 people, including a little girl, 150 people with hideous injuries. And in the end, a judge ruled that after the lawsuit, um, it was bad construction and insufficient testing of a tank. In those days, it didn't even appear that there had been a permit to build this. Um, The lawsuit in the end... Uh, they won $638,000 in damages for the victims, which would be $9 million in today's dollars. And it was the first class action lawsuit against a corporation and opened the era of modern regulation of corporations. I just have to say, because we've been talking about this for the last couple of days, my father would terrify us with this story because he was... I don't. He was born just a few years later, so this was a big story of his childhood. How horrible this accident was! And people would always say for decades. I don't know if they still say it in the North End that on a really hot, humid day in Boston, if you're down in that section of the city, you can actually smell molasses because of the way it seeped mm. into the soil. Mm. Which I don't know if that's an urban. I legend mean, it, at this it point, amazes me that a dis- that no disaster movie has ever been made about this. I, I mean, know. think about the horror of being suffocated yes. to death by a tidal wave of molasses. And you're right, Paul. I mean, this has tremendous historic importance. Oh, yes. Not just because of the precedent, the first class action lawsuit against a corporation, which is now a common feature of, mm. of our legal system, but also, you know, there were other sort of industrial yes. tragedies that followed the uh, uh, the uh, sh- Triangle Shirtwaist shirt Factory. Is that a little earlier in, than this? Was that, that around there? I think I it was around the same time. Yeah, Google that while we're talking here. But uh, and more recently, even the Station nightclub fire down in Rhode Island. Well, yes, well, and and of course the famous, um, the most famous all, the Coconut Grove in 1942, which um, led to all, 1911 was the shirt fire, the shirt factory fire. Um, The Coconut Grove fire led to all the fire regulations we have across the country. Because and of what and when Boston. you talk about corporate culpability in these disasters, I mean, think about the Columbia gas fiasco mm-hmm. in the Merrimack Valley right. this past fall. Think about what's happening now in California, where Pacific Gas and Electric, the behemoth the energy supplier, I was just reading in the Wall Street Journal, is now uh, eyeing possible bankruptcy because of all the lawsuits relative to their culpability and wildfires out there. So we still have a lot of the same issues that were brought into the fore by the molasses flood. Also reminiscent of some of today's headlines when you go back apparently into the old archives of the Boston Post and other papers, some of the defense at the time about why this shoddy construction had led to this accident impugned immigrant workers. Mm. And, well, and it put, wasn't, wasn't there some talk too together. about that this was that it was caused by a bomb? 
Right. Uh, another, initially, they thought it was a terrorist Another act. link to today where exactly. something terrible happens and what's the first the thing first we all thought they try to find since 9-11. This is right during the era, too, of the jungle, Upton Sinclair. Sure. Industrial, yeah. The Industrial Revolution yep. leading to horrible conditions for workers mm-hmm. and unsafe conditions as well. Yeah. This, was, this, this would have happened only... You know, sure. 20 years or so after yeah. Upton Sinclair's book came out. And we've come a long way, but we're still sorting yeah. out the relation, the, the, the questions like what level of responsibility mm-hmm. should corporations be held to? It's true. Uh, what do workers deserve in terms of workplace mm-hmm. protections and so on? Yeah, it, it was just a hideous accident. So I do know I have a niece who happens to work at Scholastic Books in New York. They're working on a children's book about yeah. the molasses. And it has to be very delicately handled because, of course, to a child's imagination, it's sort of like cloudy with a chance of meatballs or something. Yeah, this yeah. notion of candy rolling yeah. down. But people died. And so they've got to be yeah, careful about the way they treat it. It's kind of a 15-foot high wave moving imagine? at 50 feet per second. It's like Pompeii. Unbelievable. Parents have been stressing over this question for some time now. How much screen time is too much for your child? And what harm might you be doing by handing over that phone? You have young children. I do. Lots of people raising young <laughs> children right now. And joining us tonight is a leading expert on exactly that question. Nancy Carlson Page is Professor Emerita of Education at Lesley University in Cambridge. And she has a new guide for parents out. It's called right Young Children in the Digital Age. She just also happens to be the mother of Matt Damon, and we will get to that in just a little bit. But Nancy, thanks for coming in. We appreciate it. Thanks. It's good to be here. And and you talk about the fact that children, we intuitively know it, but they've got to be active, and that's essential to brain development. Yes. Uh, One of the reasons I wrote this guide was I... Collectively, we might be losing touch a little bit with who young children are, Mm. what they need, how they learn, because we don't hear a lot about that. Um, out there in the, the world of so much information flow. But, you know, they're not like older kids and adults. In other words, they're learning in a very different way. Their bodies and their brains are developing. It's phenomenal and it's awesome that when infants are born, their brain uh, weight and volume is a little more than a quarter of the adult brain. Mm. And by the age of three, it's 80%. And by the age of five, 90%. So it's pretty awesome that in those first five years of life, the brain is growing like never again Mm. in life. And how does it grow? It grows as kids move, interact, engage in the world, um, explore materials, interact with people. And that stimulates neural activity Mm. and brain growth occurs. Little sponges, as we say, right? Little sponges. If they're sitting on a phone, they're not moving about and interacting with their world. I have uh, two young children. I've been poring over your materials because I do stress about this. So many parents believe that they can kind of supplement their child's education with a tablet. They'll say, well, look, there's some educational programming on this. Is that really so bad? Ooh. This is one reason (laughs) I decided to weigh in on this. Uh, Because um, when we look at young kids and how they grow optimally... Okay, so it's not that they can't learn anything on a tablet or phone. But how do they learn optimally? It's by um, fully exploring three-dimensional objects in the real world. Mm. So let's say, just let's take, for example, there's a screen photo of a ball. Mm -hmm. And uh, what a child can see that it's a ball. It's a two-dimensional picture of a ball. Everything on a screen is a symbolic representation of something in the real world. It's not 
it's not a real thing. But think about all the things a kid does with a ball. Well, you're, you're living with kids who probably have a ball. Sure. But they roll it around in their hands. They can chew it. They can roll it and crawl and get it and see the angles that it goes in or fast or slow. Or, it's actually endless, mm -hmm. the number of things a kid can invent to do with that sure. one object, which I'm saying about all objects have almost an unlimited potential for exploration. Mm. And the thing on the screen can't ever give the same depth of data and information to a child who who is growing, developing, and, and their brain is developing. Mm. So every time we choose a screen, and it's a choice, and sometimes uh, maybe we talk more about this, because we make that choice as parents. I'm a grandparent. Sometimes we, we decide to use it. But I think it's good to make it a conscious choice and to understand why am I doing it right now? Is there some activity that might be more fulfilling and uh, productive for the child that I can think of yeah. doing. I, I love that old expression that play is the work of childhood. Yes. And, and they have to play. Sure. And as you were saying, there's not a lot of play value when you hand a child a screen because you say in the guide they have to invent ideas. So what does that mean? Yeah. Uh, what sense did you make of it when you saw invent? Uh, that... Children, you, you, we can't, as you say, parents can't make the choice and say, here's what to think or what to see in front of you, right? Yeah, they can take that excellent. ball and think it's something else, right? Um, like, you, you remember when you were in school and someone tried to get you to memorize things for a test and you could memorize it and then you forgot it, sure. right? Yes. And that, that, that's not real learning. Real learning is really when kids actively engage with something in the world and they build concepts in their own mind mm. that they are exploring. I was just mentioning, um, I had, well, I have eight grandkids. I don't think I said that, but the <laughs> youngest one, Max, is staying with us right now from Swaziland. So they here came for five weeks. So two days ago, he's been washing dishes. Okay, he's two and a half. Sure. He loves to wash dishes. <laughs> so two days ago, I saw him at the sink, and he's just there for a really long time. He just loves, loves it. Mm. But the, a little water was coming out of the faucet. He had his hand under it. He reached over for the first time for the sprayer, okay? Mm. Pulled the sprayer, he squeezed it, and this water stopped. And he was jarred. <laughs> right, making and the connection. wait a minute. And he went at this for the longest time, mm. squeezing and, and seeing that disappear, mm. letting it come back, seeing it here. And I watched him and thought, wow, because that's the concept of causality in sure. on the plane of action. You can't learn it on a screen. Mm. It's not possible because it involves his whole body, his squeezing, his hands on. Cause and effect. Yes, yes, action on the material, his senses, he's feeling the water, he's feeling the spray, all those mm -hmm. things that are engaging him and his brain. And, and that's where the brain is developing. Is, yeah. Well, you also write in here, and I think some people might pause at this point, where you say sometimes children have to cry. Our instinct as a parent, of course, is to, why are you crying? I'm going to stop you from crying and try to stop it. And you write, mm -hmm. the kids build coping skills through play, through crying, through adversity, and that they don't get that through screen time. Yeah, one of the cautions I have, this is a big topic, of course, mm. children crying, mm -hmm. and how much do we want to help them cope, and how much do we let them cry? And I'm trying to say here there are, Screens offer a new option for parents that they've never had before, digital devices especially. Let's say you're in the car, you've, you're in a transition, you left some friend's house and, and your child is crying. Mm -hmm. What do you do? 
it's very easy for parents, and it's happening a lot these days, hand them the phone. to hand mm-hmm. the phone for them to play a game. Yeah. And one of the things I'm saying here is that going through experiences and not over them in childhood, little by little, every day, mm. builds inside experiences of familiarity with difficulty uh, and an inner sense that I can handle the difficulty. Yeah. I'm not afraid of it, and I know what to do in it. Oh, and it learning how to do, what to do when you're bored. Yeah. Right? But if we, exactly, that's in the same category. If we bypass all of these sort of difficult, negative, hard things, conflicts, transitions, tears, if we keep bypassing them with a distraction, I'm worried, actually, that social and emotional development won't occur the way that I understand it to occur, Mm -hmm. which is through experiences. Mm -hmm. So we want to help kids have the experiences. We don't want them just to sit there and bawl their eyes out. We want to help them solve the conflict, help them talk to the person they're fighting with, help them understand that they're coming back to see the friend. We're not abandoning them. It's Mm -hmm. not as if it's two extremes, we either let them cry or not. There's a whole middle ground for parents and grandparents. And then later we see uh, sort of the preteen teenagers uh, sitting side by side, not talking, right? Texting each other. And you're worried about their inability to develop social relationships. Definitely. And the... The groundwork, the foundation for all of the of concepts, social, emotional, cognitive, it's all happening in the first few years. Mm. It's a little bit daunting to <laughs> talk to someone who I has know. two young kids. It's like, Stressing I can, right yeah, now. I, I can barely get through the day. I'm yeah. trying to get dinner uh-huh. on the table. But it is worth stepping back and realizing, oh, my gosh, they are, their basic mm. personality, their experiences, their brains are at a, a hugely critical time of life. Yeah. The, the other thing that Liam and I have both talked about, because now I'm on the other side of it, and I have late teenagers and young adults. Yeah. And I just, you know, I'm a talker. This might come as a surprise to people, but... Really? I talked to my toddlers and preschoolers incessantly yeah. in the car, in the kitchen, where we were doing. Um, you see young mothers very often now. The mother is on her iPhone, and the two- or three-year-old is playing, and she's not talking to the child. And, you know, you hope when you see that it's not all the time. But parents have to think about this, too, right, about that element of development. Yeah, it's a touchy subject because I don't like to make parents feel defensive, but at the same time, I do want to help them recognize research is starting to come in now on parents on phones in the presence of their kids. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't look good. Uh, There are studies that show now, like they've been done in restaurants, for example, observations, where kids are just begging for parents' attention, really. And look, we get caught up in the screen. The screen's habituating for all of us, and it pulls us in, and we we actually lose track of what's Mm -hmm. going on around us. And it can happen, I think, for parents a lot when they're with young kids. They want to get their email done or talk to their friend or whatever. But it's not look. It, there's a big new study showing that kids feel um, on the outside. They feel envious when their parents on the phone. They feel mm. like they they're second fiddle to the phone. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, I don't. We don't want that. I mean, they they really do need to feel like they are primary for their parents in those early years. And I would say, hard as it is, the practice of putting the phone away when you're with your young children is a really great one, or to the extent that parents can, maybe not all the time, but as much time as they can, 
there is time to pick it up later, and those kids do go to bed, hopefully before you do. <laughs> <laughs> you can do if so you're right. lucky, <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> one of your sons is Matt Damon, yeah. and when he was growing up and you were parenting him, there was a different screen that people were worried about. It was the television yeah. screen. How did you deal with that with him, and yeah. do you think it was successful? Would you have changed how you did it? You know, it's a great question that no one ever asked me. In those days, television had a certain place in family life, but it wasn't that significant. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that pervasive. And he and his brother played outside all the time. They did art, art, they made up stories, they acted things out. They had a flourishing play life. And they did watch TV and I didn't worry about it because it was like a cartoon show on Saturday morning or yeah. you know something um, that looked relatively minor. It wasn't real violent. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't linked to marketing of toys that right. came later after yes. they grew up, which changed things very that much did because things. it interfered with creative play by dictating what kids were going to play. Suddenly mm -hmm. they're playing Batman or Spider-Man or whatever was on the TV, right. which got stimulated by having a toy that looks just like what right. they saw. Sure. Well, and it's interesting in that vein because I interviewed you about 10 or 12 years ago and you told me such an interesting story that um, when Matt had the Jason Bourne movies come out, yeah. he made a concerted yeah. effort yeah. and a clear decision about the video game that went along with the movies because of your research. Talk about what he decided not to do. Yeah, at that time, and uh, like I said, not when he was young, but then as he got older, he saw the trend um, and had to hear about it from me. Yeah, sure. Um, of marketing toys and products linked directly to TV shows for kids mm. and the undermining effect of creative play that I saw. And Matt certainly understands the value of play and, and the role it has had in his creative life. Mm. Sure. And but, that but, comes but through play. But he wouldn't let his likeness be no. used, right? So in the Jason Bourne example, he also understood that marketing those toys, which happens, toys get marketed to kids that are rated to PG-13 movies. Mm -hmm. So he wouldn't want what's an adult film. It's not a kid's film. Mm -hmm to get, have a toy marketed to kids that would then draw them in and make them feel like, hey, this movie's for me, I've got the toy. Mm. So it was also that. Well, it's a fascinating decision, it's fascinating research. Yeah. It is Young Children in the Digital Age uh, from the Defending the Early Years at Leslie University. Nancy Carlson Page, thank you so much for coming in. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I've enjoyed talking to both of you very much. Each day, hundreds of thousands of people pour into the one square mile of downtown, mile of downtown. Everywhere you turn, now. Immigration issues are front and center. Nationally, of course, the whole border wall and the uh, the caravans moving through Latin America toward the Mexican border. Uh, what do we do about illegal immigration and some of the issues that are related to it uh, are consuming Washington. And, and same here in Massachusetts. Uh, one of the big controversial issues of the last legislative session that's now being carried over into the new one is proposals to pass what's called the Safe Communities Act, which basically bars local law enforcement agencies, or I should say l severely constrains the degree to which they can cooperate with federal immigration authorities, the types of offenses where they can and how long they can hold someone whose uh, citizenship is in question, uh, depending on the type of crime they're alleged to have committed. So uh, it's really a front and center. And of course, whenever there's a tragic uh, death or a uh, newsworthy 
crime committed by someone who's here illegally, uh, the issue flares up anew. We talked about much of that with Jessica Vaughn, Director of Policy Studies at the Center for Immigration Studies. CIS has been around for almost 30 years. They're a well-regarded think tank that describes itself as pro-immigration, but also for limited and legal immigration. Mm -hmm. So while they're often referenced by conservatives in the debate over immigration issues, uh, their research has credibility uh, with a wide spectrum of people. And I think you'll see why as you listen to my conversation with Jessica Vaughn. That, then, is the way the Jessica, I don't think anybody likes migraine headaches. But to me and to a lot of people I talk to, the entire immigration debate is one constant migraine headache. How did, first of all, how did things get so bad? You've been following this for more than two decades. Has it always been such a toxic set of issues filled with spin and misinformation and demagoguery? Not quite to the extent that we see today. Um, it's it, When I started on the immigration issue 27 years ago or so, it was much lower profile. It was an, a, a matter of heated debate only in a few places in the country that had a lot of immigrants, places like California, Florida, New York. It, and immigration policy itself was made by the immigration subcommittees in Congress pretty much only talking to special interests who really had um, uh, particular reasons for trying to change policy. And one of the people who ran it was Senator Ted Kennedy from the Commonwealth. He was in charge of the Senate subcommittee, and he and a couple other people, Alan Simpson from Wyoming and a few others, talked to big businesses, ethnic groups, and other special interests, while the, uh, Americans pretty much thought everything was fine, it really started to get out of control, I would say, in the 1990s, when travel became much easier. And uh, it was after we had had an amnesty in the late 1980s, and, and family members of those people who had been given amnesty started to come over. Um, and it it just got out of control. The Clinton administration, um, well, appointed a blue ribbon commission to recommend changes, and the whole thing got completely politicized once the government started to consider actual reductions in immigration. So when you say it started to become politicized in the early 90s uh, because of efforts to constrict it, the pushback was coming from liberals and immigration advocates Yes, I think that um, the we think special now of, of I'm not sorry to interrupt you, but we think now of you know Rush Limbaugh and uh, uh, and the hard right has made immigration just a third rail issue. But that's you're much more it, recent. It, it goes much it, it goes much further back. Yes, absolutely. I would put it back to the 1990s when um, after the Commission on Immigration Reform put out its report after the World Trade Center bombing of 1993, uh, and Congress um, took the advice of this bipartisan commission, which recommended cutting immigration, legal immigration down uh, to about 500,000, which was at that time about a tw uh, 25% cut. It would be a 50% cut now. And um, 
and that really kind of blew it up into the public more. And then it really became more of a partisan issue, I think, after 9-11. And again, as I recall, it was Ted Kennedy working with then-President George W. Bush to try to work out a compromise. And then you had the, the famous Gang of Eight. Yes. And uh, all these efforts just washed up on the rocks. Yes. And I, and I think they always washed up on the rocks because they were trying to make the same kind of deal that was passed in 1986 under President Reagan, which was we're going to do more enforcement and an amnesty. And that's going to solve the problem. And the problem with that approach is that the amnesty always happens immediately. And the enforcement is a promise that is never fulfilled. What benefited Donald Trump was public frustration with this constant effort to say, we're just going to, we're going to do an amnesty and that's going to solve it. And we promise you that we're going to start securing the border and enforcing the law. And nobody believes it anymore. Um, let's focus for a little bit on Massachusetts. Talk about the classic immigrant-built state, yes. going back to, of course, the colonists and uh, and right on through our history. Uh, you're you live here, and so I'm sure you recall the 1990 gubernatorial race where the late the late BU President John Silber upset the apple cart and won the Democratic primary narrowly losing the final election to Bill Weld, but the silver boomlet was built largely on the issue of immigration. He, at the time, pointed to uh, unrest and concerns surrounding the massive uh, Southeast Asian immigration into the Lowell area uh, and uh, talked about he linked uh, immigration with w- uh, growth in the welfare roles and really brought to light a lot of discontent among predominantly working-class people who were living in communities that, in some cases, all of a sudden, you know, they talk about an invasion now uh, on the border, and that's very controversial. But I remember at the time talking about, you know, communities that felt as if they had been subject to an invasion or a deluge of both legal and illegal immigration that had caused all sorts of social problems that weren't going addressed. Do you recall this time? And is that still, are we still living through that? I do recall the time. Actually, at that time, I was living in the Washington, D.C. area. But um, I I do recall that time, and it came at, um, and and that's part of the phenomenon, I think, of illegal immigration and legal immigration spreading out more across the country. We published a study not too long after that time that we called um, the New Ellis Islands. We took Census Bureau data and looked at the areas of the country, county by county, Um, that had experienced the biggest growth in immigration, not the highest number of immigrants, but the most growth. And we did this map based on counties and and, um, came up with these hotspots of immigration. And it turned out that they were not in California or Florida or or some of the traditional places thought of as gateways. It was Iowa, Georgia, North Carolina, Nevada, and I'm sure parts of Massachusetts that had not, that, that were where it was growing. It was just a change for them. And um, this was 
when the public really started to pay more attention to it. And, and I think that the fact that the immigrants who are arriving tended to be on average less educated than native-born Americans and thus uh, confined to lower-skilled jobs meant that they were competing directly with Americans who had, for whom these jobs had always been very well-paying, jobs that you could raise a family on, have a middle-class life working in, but wages were not rising in those jobs. These were the manufacturing and um, other types of employment, even restaurant employment, where suddenly the upward mobility in terms of earnings was was flattening out. So in part there, and due globalization to this of cheap was labor. starting, yeah. and so there were all these forces that were um, changing the dynamics of the economy and the labor market that happened all at once. And people began to realize that that those Americans who, for whatever reason, had not gotten a college education or otherwise, were facing real competition. And the, and the numbers of legal immigrants coming started to spike as well because of the amnesty that had happened in the 80s. Illegal immigrants commit violent crimes at a lower rate than regular citizens. That's a statement you often hear. Is that true? Uh, nobody can back that up with any data. Most state and local law enforcement agencies do not track the immigration status of people who are arrested for crimes. And um, we don't know the immigration status of people who are incarcerated. But I don't even think, I mean, I, there's no evidence one way or the other. I, I don't think there's any difference. I, I think the important thing is what do we do with that small fraction of the illegal immigrant population that has committed crimes and that is causing problems in the community, we need to make sure that law enforcement agencies are talking to each other so that those people can be sent back home. And that's the problem with sanctuaries. Because of, um, of the sanctuary policies imposed by the Supreme Judicial Court, ICE has to go around and find these people. And that produces exactly the kind of immigration enforcement that advocates for immigrants say that they don't want. That means ICE is in the neighborhoods knocking on doors, arresting people at work, in the street. And, and that's what's frightening to immigrants. Victims and witnesses are never targets for immigration enforcement. ICE is looking for criminals and egregious immigration violators. And the, the only people who benefit from that are the criminals. People in the community do not fear ICE as much as they fear the criminals who are being released by the sanctuary policies. But to hear some of our local Pauls tell it, uh, ICE is not quite the benign actor that you're describing. ICE, and we, again, here we go with the policymaking by anecdote or the politics of anecdote, but we do see stories. There was one not too long ago of a, uh, a father... Uh, you know, I think worked torn at, away from his family. I think um, he worked at Harvard, maybe yeah, as a custodian. Law, by and, all yeah. accounts, a law-abiding guy was applying for legal status, scooped and, up and deported just because of his status. How does that make any sense? And doesn't that? And and you know, you talk about uh, facilitating cooperation and enforcement. Um, the 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 proponents of the Safe Communities Act argue, and apparently some police buy this, that. Uh, 
the fear of collaboration with ICE or of getting caught up in ICE's clutches uh, deters people in immigrant communities from working with police to from solve crimes. From reporting crimes, crimes or, right. or so on. Yeah, well, the message needs to get out there that victims and witnesses are not going to be targeted by ICE. But here's the thing with some of these cases that are sympathetic, and I think they, they are. You can't help but feel bad for that family. But under our system, the deportation decision is made by an immigration judge, according to the laws passed by Congress. It's not up to ICE to look the other way at a removal order that's issued lawfully by an immigration judge. It's not up to state and local lawmakers or mayors or city councils or even local police to second guess these decisions that are made through the very, really generous due process that people are awarded in our immigration system. If we're gonna have a legal system, we have to enforce the rules. If people think that we should change our laws to allow people who've been here for a long time to apply for status, that has to happen through Congress. And I think that's probably a change that, you know, a lot of people would look for. But it ha- it can't be done by just suspending enforcement, um, uh, you know, of lawfully issued removal orders. And, you know, that's... I think that this individual may have an opportunity to apply other ways, but um, if if he's exhausted all of his appeals and the judge says it's time to go, he should go. We're talking with Jessica Vaughn of the Center for Immigration Studies, and, and just to wrap it up, Jessica, by the time this podcast drops, maybe the shutdown will be over. I, I hope so. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't bet the, the mortgage on it. But uh, when we talked a couple of years ago during the campaign about immigration politics, uh, you referred to the border wall as more of a slogan than a policy idea and, and as a, a cartoonish idea. Uh, and you still feel the same way? I do. I think the wall should be, you know, this idea of a wall that Mexico is going to pay for is not going to become a reality, but it is a good metaphor for border security because that's really what we need. Does the president know it's a metaphor? (laughs) (laughs) According to former chief of staff John Kelly, he did eventually back off the idea of a concrete wall. You know, it gets cheers at rallies. So (laughs) Yeah. Well, Jessica, if there's one common theme to emerge from our conversation here, maybe it's that government and policymaking by knee-jerk reflex, pandering, vitriol, and cartoonish stereotypes is not very productive. It's not productive at all. Unfortunately, it also seems to be a reality that policymaking by crisis is what gets people to move, whether it's the crisis of the caravan or and others streaming across or the crisis of people not getting their paychecks. Sadly, that's, I think, going to be a feature of at least the next two years or, or a bug of the next two years. If people want to read more of your work, that of your colleagues, access the database that you have online, how can they do it? Everything we write and everything that we find uh, in the way of immigration statistics is on our website at cis.org. Jessica Vaughn, Director of Policy Studies for the Center for Immigration Studies in Washington, thank you so much for joining us on Studio BZ. 
Thank you, John. You should know this. The end of Massachusetts open enrollment for health coverage ends January 23rd. And joining us tonight to talk about all of this is Audrey Gasteyer, who's chief of policy and strategy at the Health Connector, which is the group that links individuals with their health care coverage. So, Audrey, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Very important information here because people only Mm -hmm. have about a week left, right? What is open enrollment? So open enrollment is the time of year when individuals who don't get coverage through their employer or in another way can come and shop for health insurance through the Health Connector. They can shop from a wide array of health insurance companies and products, get enrolled in that coverage. Mm -hmm. If somebody's already covered through us, it's the time of year where they can come and update their information or maybe switch plans if they're interested in doing that. Healthcare is obviously such a big expense in Americans' lives in particular. How are premiums looking this year and deductibles? What's the cost looking like this year versus years past? Absolutely. So we've had actually very stable premiums coming into 2019. So that's great news for people shopping for health insurance. And Massachusetts actually has the lowest average premiums of any exchange in the country. Mm. So people who want to come and check out their options can know that there's really affordable options available to them. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, most people who come and shop at the Health Connect can qualify for additional help paying for their premiums. And the Mass Health Connector isn't just for individuals, it's for businesses as well that want to provide health coverage to their employees. What what is the new option that you're giving to small businesses this year with their coverage? That's right. So about a year ago, the Health Connector launched something called Health Connector for Business. Mm -hmm. And it's a new program for small businesses in the Commonwealth that have fewer than 50 workers. And they can come and shop for coverage options from all the leading carriers in Massachusetts and shop for high value, affordable health care options. So important because you hear from so many small business owners how expensive it is. It's their biggest expense. To provide coverage for all of their employees. So you are Obamacare for Massachusetts. People might hear things in the news and wonder if it applies to us. Talk about this ruling uh, about Obamacare in Texas and would that ruling have any effect on what happens here? So the ruling on the the case that is in Texas right now and is now going up to an appeals court, the Fifth Circuit of Appeals, um, would have substantial impacts across the country on um, the Affordable Care Act, including Massachusetts. But that being said, Massachusetts has a lot of its own rules and laws in place that protect things like um, uh, protections for people with pre-existing conditions. And as you know, Massachusetts had its own health reform law. There could still be impacts if something like that were to be ruled in a particular way, including um, money for the Commonwealth to help support these types of programs. So So keep your eye on it. Exactly. So it's something we're watching very, very closely. Well, the Republicans in Congress also repealed the individual mandate, which is a part of Obamacare, and they've reduced the open enrollment at the federal level. Have you noticed any impact in Massachusetts on the cost of premiums or anything like that because of what's going on at the federal level? We've been successful at navigating those types of changes and making sure we're protecting coverage here in the Commonwealth for people. Um, But there has been some confusion about things like the individual mandate penalty. At the federal level, they did get rid of those penalties for people who are not carrying coverage. But in Massachusetts, we still have that requirement that people carry coverage that meets state standards. So that's still in play. And that's been in place since 2007. Still face a tax penalty here if you don't have it. That's exactly right. Well, Audrey Gasteyer, thanks so much for coming in to explain all of this. So open enrollment ends next Wednesday. We'll have the link to the website on cbsboston.com. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank it was you nice so to much meet for you. having me. The unexpected is not knowing what's going to happen. Uh, that's the problem. Uh, last year, we lost our video. CES. It started January 8th in Las Vegas. You hear about this every year. It's the Consumer Electronics Show. 
And every year there are new gadgets that come out. Self-driving technology has been big recently, drone technology, new TVs, 8K TVs are coming out now, TVs that can roll up. I love up. the ones that scroll. They can roll up, you know, right into your TV stand and then you scroll them back out when you want to watch TV again. So there's some really cool things going on, but credit to Mike Murphy of Quartz. He came up with a list of what he calls the dumbest smart gadgets at CES <laughs> 2019. <laughs> and there are some doozies here. And it did, you know what? It, the techno, the technological advances we've made are, are really awesome in a lot of ways. I mean, medicine, of course, uh, self-driving technology. I'm a big believer in that, but there are things that we're inventing now to make things easier for ourselves that we really don't need and that in some way make us so dumb. Like I think GPS has made us way dumber as a species. I don't you know. You can't remember. I love GPS. I know, but you can't remember where you're going anymore. <laughs> you don't know where you're going. You're just letting True. this machine tell you where. Anyway, so let's get into some of these dumb things. Um, the world, we start, he starts the list with the world's only, the world's only and probably because no one else thought of this idea, smart bottle opener. <laughs> and I truly don't even know what it is. Jonathan is showing you guys this right now. It, it opens the bottle as any bottle opener would. And then it somehow scans the bottle and now you know what is kind it of any glass bottle is. or a bottle of wine or beer? It's this is a beer. Just any bottle. Be, beer okay. opener. Oh, okay. It's beer bottle beer. opener. And then and then it kind of keeps track for you of, oh, you just had a Sam Adams Boston <laughs> lager. And then Why you do can I need to know pair that? it with your app. It syncs up to Wi-Fi. And you can kind of let your friends know, hey, I just had this new hipster beer. It's it's Why the oh, hell it's for the, would you want It's for the craft beer crowd. The hipster <laughs> just, people who need to be experts. But again, you could beer. just you can't take, just Instagram. I just had a heady topper. Oh my god! That's my thing is you could just take a picture of the heady topper <laughs> right, and you could send it so to them. Connect the opener to the internet by Wi-Fi. Oh my yes, gosh. it can connect to the Wi-Fi and it's, it can connect to Bluetooth and, and then it, it syncs with an app. Bluetooth. You download an app on your phone. Oh, I just opened up my bottle of beer. But here. you don't have to actually open, take off the cap. The, the thing does it? Yeah, it's a, it's a you know, yeah. it's just a, yeah, yeah, happens, it's I think a otherwise it's just a bottle opener. What does it do with the cap? Does it recycle it automatically It does or something? look like it maybe it could might contain be in it in there. some way. You know what this reminds me of? Those bizarre gift gadgets you were supposed to buy for your dad for Christmas growing <laughs> right. up. Like some bizarre yeah. Yeah, you go to shaving Ron, yeah. Yeah. Ron yeah. Popeil's Exactly. Uh, yeah. Ron Popeil's new shaving yeah. device right. for dad. But at least you know, that would help you shave. This thing does nothing for you. <laughs> well, it it's insane. Now I know that you both probably thought that, you know, Keller's your resident Luddite. That I would shun this idea. But I embrace it. Okay. I think okay. this technology now needs to be applied to Pez. Pez. The Pez dispenser. You know what Pez is? Yes, yes the of Pez course. dispenser. I, you know, Love think them. of all the human agony caused over the True. years. All of the what do you call it? Carpal, the carpal tunnel, tunnel, tunnel symptoms. Calluses. From having to tip Popeye's head back <laughs> yeah. to have him cough up calluses the, uh, on your fingers. The candy. Potentially. It's outrageous. Yeah. Now with this new technology, yeah. you can just uh, have your Bluetooth on, and it'll tell you what flavor it is while you do it, and and alert your friends. And I alert just your had friends. A Instagram Pez. it. Yeah. Fantastic. Instagram. Make sure Snapchat the Kremlin it. knows. It That's brave, right. Make sure the Kremlin knows. It's a brave new war. Yes, exactly. Everyone. Through Facebook. Uh, that we have the smart digital backsplash. Now, I actually, I will say, I actually kind of like this idea. It's uh, a digital backsplash in, say, your kitchen. So you could 
change oh. your backsplash depending on in the kitchen you know whatever your mood you want today i want to have a so you backsplash see, with stock prices up or, or you something could say i'm cooking here today next to the ocean in san diego and that's <laughs> yes, what would change exactly. call, well i could say calling up the recipe or the recipe my ipad does just fine this makes me wonder at what point people are going to want to Get rid of so many screens in their life. You know, you're yeah. at work all day. You're this on your guy cell phone. With the the exact uh, glasses you would expect, showing yeah. us how this works. He's yeah. a techie. And the hair. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Okay. The next thing we have here is the AVA Byte Smart Garden from. Ava Technologies. Ava Byte uses AI and intuitive user experience to give every home, cook, busy parent, and curious child access to fresh organic plants and veggies like herbs, lettuce, and tomatoes. Uh, what does it do? I don't understand what it does. Jonathan, do we know what this does? It's, uh, it, it's, it's a, not a garden. It's a, uh, basically a plant pot. Oh, it's, it's, a plant like, pot. it's like Chia Pet. I don't understand how this is any different is it from, self-watering? from uh, potted plant. Is it a self-watering soil, timed soil thing? Soil-free. Soil-free. Soil yes, free. it's like hydroponic. And it's it's connected to, uh, you know, the internet. Yeah, so it's hydroponic growth. Of, of course it is. So uh, I don't, I, but understand. So you can tell this your is friends. One, this is one of those where it's truly, you can't get a pot and put it on your counter and fill it with some soil and put some seeds in and I don't understand. It's so 20th what, century, Liam. But I don't yeah, understand. Liam, wait, some kind of Luddite? <laughs> I mean, please. Oh, wow. And lastly, I believe, uh, we have the, um, oh, wait, we have two more here. Okay, we have the Smartest Travel Mug. This is from Cauldron, a company called Cauldron. I uh, want list my of mug increasingly bizarre. What if your coffee mug kept drinks hot for 20 hours? What if your coffee mug brewed coffee from your phone? Wait a minute, stop oh, right there. no. <laughs> Who on God's green earth wants their coffee to be hot for 20 hours? Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be gone by 20 hours? I mean, it's like they say in the ads on TV about the si- if you if your erection lasts for six hours, call your doctor. No kidding! How about one hour? Uh, oh, my God. Man, um, oh, man. And here we go. Lastly, we have the... Cat Toilet Lavibot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This is from Persong. It's the world's first and only IOT. What does IOT stand for? Internet of Things. Internet of Things Cat Litter Box to automatically clean itself and refill litter. Totally normal object to have in your living room. Yes. Uh, looks, uh, we're looking at it. It looks like a... The cat sticking out of it. It looks like a washing machine. The cat yes. is definitely photoshopped in there. <laughs> <laughs> and when the Russians hack the grid and screw up the IOT, yeah. uh, is puss going to get sucked into the vortex along with the dirty litter? It is a it is a strange contraption. I, I wish people could see it, but it looks like a washing machine. And the cat has to get in through a hole that's in the middle of the machine. It go better in, be do its business, And then it has to get out. Listen, I this does tap into one thing, which I do believe, which is that people will pay anything for pet products. Oh, yeah. I knew a woman who paid $9,000 for her dog to have a cesarean section. <laughs> We're watching video oh now of the gosh. cat actually they, using the this. The dog had a C-section? The dog had a C-section and she paid $9,000. Yeah, Did it go to Lamont's class first? <laughs> no that labor and delivery breathing. Can you go back to the kitty uh, going Let's in? Let's see the kitty cat. Yeah. We're watching the the cat make its okay. way into this litter box. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh-huh. my God. Goes. It's the cat is oh, highly suspicious. Very suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Oh so it sends gosh. you a message. It like, oh, no, the cat wait. 
lobby in the I, lobby I, box. I use the lobby bot. Yeah. And when you Can get you home tonight. Can you send back a text saying, shut your fruit factory <laughs> mouth? No, it would be, good job. Oh, my yeah, goodness. Yeah, good I'll boy. Right you know what, though? Home. People will buy it. People are going to buy it. Well, maybe that's I don't the brilliance. Know, maybe that's the brilliance. Not, no Bostonian is going to buy that. No. Well, that's well, that's for sure. Is that it? That's the list. Wow. <laughs> that is wow. a really stupid list. <laughs> and, you know, it just goes to show. I don't just because it's technology doesn't mean just because you can you have to have do it. it doesn't mean you should, should do it. Do it, yes. And by a credit again to Mike Murphy of Quartz for that list of the dumbest smart gadgets at CES 2019. <laughs> I will we'll check back in and say I, I want to see how well these sell because I think some of these will sell very well. You know, venture capitalists funded every one of those projects. Oh sure. And was like this is it. This is going to be the hot new thing. Oh my gosh! CES. I will say my favorite moment of the day is when the cat sent the text to the owner <laughs> to saying, the owner. I just went pee. And then I, I, it said, mommy. Is, yeah. That might make it worth it. You just know, say, can true. you imagine? That's a party trick. Of, it's really uh, To true. end all party oh, tricks. Guys, my yeah, guys, dog just went him. into the lab. Rufus, just let me know. <laughs> right. Our city is truly the hub. The hub of the universe. I think this is a very productive show. Oh, man. We've had a lot going on. A lot we of interviews. Screen time for your kids to a real in-depth conversation about uh, immigration (laughs) to screen time with your cat telling you that they just went to the bathroom. To a horrible death by molasses suffocation. (laughs) And then to the mass health connector and what, you know, premiums for this year. I mean, we we really do. Seriously, there is nowhere else you're going to get this kind of content. And if you like it, would you please let us know? Mm -hmm. You can uh, rate or review us. Uh, online. You can subscribe and share. Tell a friend, please. Uh, all the usual places we find podcasts, just search for Studio BZ. And our uh, Studio BZ has its own Twitter handle. Don't know how mm-hmm. that gets updated, but it does. <laughs> it's I'd like to meet that sometime. Pod, all yeah. on its own. I'd like to get a room. text from the Studio BZ Twitter <laughs> feed every time. It, well, I guess that's what the tweets are. Right. Yeah, anytime it but goes it, to the bathroom. Anyway, it's at Studio BZ Pod, and my Twitter handle is at Keller at Large. I'm at Paula Eben WBZ. And I'm at Liam WBZ. By the way, next week, a, a packed broadcast again. We have uh, Lori Trahan, the new representative from Massachusetts. John, I know you have an interview lined up. and uh, It with is with Andrea Campbell, the Andrea president Campbell. of the Boston City Council, reacting to Mayor Walsh's State of the City speech, talking about her own agenda and some of the big pressing issues. We may even get into the whole mass pike boondoggle. Sure. I yes. call it the pike over in, in yeah. And we also have an expert that. coming in on uh, ranked choice voting. I don't know if you have thoughts about that, John, but we'll get into it next week. It's it's this new system. More and more states seem to be leaning toward this. Instead of going just vote for one person, you rank your choices. We're going to go through that with an expert who's trying to push for this in Massachusetts. Plus a special bonus next week, 35 minutes of Liam looking at himself in the mirror. <laughs> it's true, which yeah. is, you know, awesome. something we could record on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, so join us and join us on WBZ TV yeah. as well. Well, of course. Do people but actually meantime, think that I look in the mirror for 35 minutes? Um, now you just days? said you did. I well, think that you yeah. pretty much just <laughs> transmitted that. And now we're all envisioning it. And, and we can't again, get it out of our minds. And of course, yeah. the most important reminder. Yes. We'll, we'll be, be seeing, seeing you. you. <laughs> there are going to be a sizable You'll be number. You'll seeing yourself. That's right. Yeah. There are going to be a sizable number of people who go, I bet Liam Martin does look. <laughs> I know. 35 <laughs> to 40 minutes.